All right, thank you. Um, I'm really excited to be at Marstown. It, it has had such a great history, some great folks. Uh, and uh, I can remember uh, many, many years ago having some great discussions about heart failure and research there uh, with folks and faculty who are uh, here at this program. So um, really enjoy being here. I wanted to uh, talk to you today about synthetic cannabinoids. <clears throat> and the topic has to do with what I call a manufactured drug epidemic. Uh, let me get an idea of whether you're seeing some of this here at Morristown. I suspect you are, yeah? So you've got some clinical experience with these uh, patients, and you probably had the same feeling I did, which got me involved in this, to say, what is going on with synthetic cannabinoids? When the epidemic first hit, I thought, okay, just throw it into that breadbasket of bath salts and every other thing that's going to hit the emergency department. And this, this epidemic has been very sticky, number one. And number two, our experience with cannabis and cannabis overdoses really seem to have nothing to do with synthetic cannabinoids. So I thought it'd be great to uh, review this and understand it myself. And uh, that was the uh, origin of this, of this talk. You know, on a typical day or afternoon in Philly, we will have a couple of these K2 overdoses come in. And the story is, roughly speaking, works out to be about the same. Agitated, uh, sometimes seizures, difficult to control patient, blood pressure and heart rate are elevated, sweaty diaphoretic. And they come in the emergency department, and in our case, they generally get thrown in the hallway, which is the safest place to be in our emergency department because the nurses and the doctors are right there. And a, little, a few moments later, as the patient settles down, the nurse says, hey, you better go check this guy out. He's not looking that good in terms of his vital signs especially. Normally, they're just sleeping and somnolent. And you walk over and you look at the monitor and you think, well, this is not what I expected, heart rate of 33, respiratory rate of 20, <clears throat> and then that little squiggly line at the end there showing like maybe the respiratory rate is not really going to stay very much at 20. So what's it all about? What are synthetic cannabinoids all about? How are we going from what seems to be like a sympathomimetic overdose to almost uh, the opposite, a parasympathetic uh, situation? And for that matter, cannabis, you know, marijuana, hash, dronabinol, uh, what are all these substances? Well, if we, get, if we start organizing ourselves, we can start breaking them down into different classes. There's the phytocannabinoids, the endocannabinoid system, and then the synthetic cannabinoids. And it all starts with the cannabis plant. There are two cannabis plants, sativa and indica. Uh, sativa generally tends to be the origin for THC. Indica, a little bit more for the cannabidiol, and those are the two most active substances in THC. There literally are up to 100 active substances in, TA, in um, cannabis. Not all of them are psychoactive, by the way. Uh, whether a substance uh, or whether a particular extract or prepared material from cannabis has less than 0.3% of THC determines whether it is considered uh, hemp or like a hemp product, in which case it may have a fair amount of cannabidiol. And if it's greater than 0.3, then it's considered cannabis and has the same sort of like uh, schedule one controlled situation as uh, you know marijuana or a drug of abuse. And so that's how you can go and buy hemp seed oil and other products uh, on the internet 
and have it have a very tiny quantity of THC. And all these plants are generally grown for uh, their uh, intended use. So if you're going to grow a cannabis plant for uh, the uh, intention of drug abuse, you will make sure it has plenty of these buds with trichomes on it. And if you're going to grow it for uh, hemp, and rope, and paper, uh, then you'll grow it like uh, George Washington did, which is a very high giant plants with big stalks. And uh, medical marijuana folks are very fond of saying that, uh, you know, the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution was written on hemp paper. It really was. Um, but at that time, uh, folks saw hemp uh, and cannabis as just like a useful plant. It was later that the medicinal effects became more and more, um, uh, or the psychoactive effects became more and more understood. <clears throat> and then we have dronabinol, right? Dronabinol is basically a, uh, synth not a, a synthesized THC. It is not necessarily uh, synthetic. Um, we'll get into that definition a little bit later. And then you have K2 or spice. And this basically is plant material with a synthetic cannabinoid sprayed on it. And we'll talk about that in detail. Hash is a, a resin substance that is a very concentrated, could be up to 50% THC, a very concentrated substance uh, meant to have a more potent effect. So this is all the words. This is the, this is the, the various substance that we're dealing with here. And as I said, this falls into the cannabinoids are not just one thing. They fall into three different categories. One of them is the endogenous cannabinoids, which is your own cannabinoid system. And the other is the phytocannabinoids and then the synthetic cannabinoids. And those are agonists and antagonists. And of the agonists, you have classical, non-classical, and others, depending upon the structure. So let's talk a little bit <coughs> about the um, endogenous cannabinoid system. The endogenous cannabinoid system was discovered when folks began to study the THC effect on the body. And endogenous cannabinoids are generally used to control patholo pathologic situations in the body, inflammation, uh, ischemia, etc. There are a number of different receptors that uh, comprise the endogenous cannabinoid system. The first one is the CB1 receptor. And that is a uh, fairly, uh, a very important receptor. Um, it is a presynaptic receptor and results in a suppression of inhibition. And we'll talk a little bit back because trying to understand what, these, what the CB1 is doing and what endogenous cannabinoids doing is a little counterintuitive. The CB1 receptor is on the central nervous system. It's on the peripheral nervous system. It's responsible for the uh, euphoric, uh, high of, of cannabis uh, and is also f responsible for the hypertension and the hypotension and the bradycardia and the tachycardia. CB2, and now CB1, excuse me, THC is the pr pr uh, principal agonist of the phytocannabinoids. CB2 is cannabidiol's uh, target and a little bit of uh, THC and that exists on the immune system on cells uh, macrophages, other cells, and seems to modulate pain and pain cytokines. And then we have the TRPV or TRPV1 receptor, and you might be familiar with the TRPV1 receptor and not know it when you're dealing with people with cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome. 
the TRPV1 receptor is a receptor that modulates uh, noxious stimuli, perception of pain and temperature, um, and uh, is a very, very important uh, receptor in uh, the cannabinoid system. Endocannabinoids like endenamide uh, and, and bind to the TRPV1 receptor. And then there are other receptors. It's all getting sort of elucidated. The endogenous cannabinoid system basically um, modulates the release of neurotransmitters. And so if you think of a, an inhibitory neuron, a GABAminergic neuron, and an excitatory neuron, GABA is prepared in, in uh, vesicles and released at the nerve terminal, binds to its receptor, and then triggers uh, inhibition. So when the body is in need of inhibition, for example, when an excitatory neuron is firing over and over, GABA is released and stops that excitatory neuron. All right? What resets GABA? Otherwise, every time GABA would fire, every excitatory neuron would be shut off. Well, it's the endocannabinoid system. And these uh, molecules, which are basically derivatives of arachidonic acid, are released. They're not in vesicles. They're basically released <clears throat> and manufactured on the spot, bind to the presynaptic CB1 receptor, and stop the release of uh, vesicles. Now, so in the GABAbinergic system, which is the system which basically shuts off excitatory neurons, you have a what we call a depolarization-induced suppression of inhibition, right? And that is basically turning off the off switch. So the body is a balance of excitation and inhibition. The excitation comes on, inhibition comes on from GABA, and endocannabinoids shut off the inhibition. So instead of just increasing and decreasing excitation signals, you basically control them by turning them off and then turning off the off switch so that they're back on again. The interesting thing about endocannabinoids is that there's no resting tone of endocannabinoids, right? So if you have, you're sitting there with a blood pressure of whatever, then you have a resting sympathetic tone. I'm standing up here talking, I have a higher sympathetic resting tone. That tone basically varies based on your activity. Endocannabinoids basically remain silent until you have some situation that requires their activity. So for example, if you are under stress, um, if you have inflammation, um, if you have damage or tissue damage, sepsis, endocannabinoids are released and seem to be protective of ischemia and protective of inflammation. So you can see why people got very excited about the endocannabinoid system thinking that it would have a therapeutic value. In the CNS, GABA seems to be the primary target of the endocannabinoid system. And the way you get high from THC is that THC then binds to the CB1 receptor, shuts off GABA, and then allows dopaminergic transmission, right? So you turn off the off switch and you get euphoric. You have a lot of dopamine. And the way to think of it, if you've ever seen one, anyone high on THC, right, they become very fascinated with this device. It's the most fascinating thing in the world. They cannot terminate their interest in this device, right? And that's because that CB1 receptor is not allowing them to go like, all right, enough of that, and let's move on, right? This is why they have difficulty with memory, and memory impairment is a problem with um, cannabis. And this may also be why folks who have a tendency to psychosis, perhaps schizophrenia, have uh, problems because 
dopamine and the improper balance of dopamine is a big issue in, in those conditions. Now what's interesting is, is that in the peripheral nervous system, you don't have GABA. And so the same presynaptic suppression is going on with epinephrine. So in a peripheral nerve terminal, in a sympathetic nerve terminal, on your um, splanchnic bed, in your heart, and what have you, you're getting the same suppression of inhibition from a cannabinoid that you would get with GABA, but you're getting it and inhibiting the release of epinephrine. So if you take animals, for example, and you inject them with an, an, anandamide, which is the principal um, endogenous cannabinoid, and they're awake, they get hypertension. Their blood pressure and heart rate goes up. If they're anesthetized, they get hypotension and bradycardia. And that's because this balance of the CNS stimulation and the peripheral stimulation is at the heart and soul of what is going on with cardiovascular effects of cannabinoids. So start to think about your patient who comes in, who's on the street with muscle spasms and um, looking like he's developing um, clonus and cannot walk straight, has no balance, is hypertensive, tachycardic, and sweaty. He gets in the bed, he starts laying flat, he's not stimulated, and suddenly the blood pressure and the heart rate begin to drop. So that is the endogenous cannabinoid system. Now, a little bit about the cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome uh, is a fascinating problem. Uh, I think as we look at our own experience with cannabinoid hyper hyperemesis, we're realizing we have a whole cadre of people who we used to call cyclical vomiting until we tested their urine over and over again and found out they were heavy THC users and now we're reclassifying them as cannabinoid hyperemesis. And something is going on with this TRPV1 receptor with um, uh, cannabinoids. Either they're saturated with uh, THC and they become very sensitized and that sensitization re results in this abdominal pain and triggers nausea or some other mechanism is going on. But what's interesting is that capsaicin seems to work extremely well. And capsaicin and heat trigger and bind to or agonist to the TRPV1 receptor. So the first case reports of cannabinoid hyperemesis were in patients who literally were sitting in hot tubs um, and warm showers for hours and hours and hours to stop their vomiting. And when they would get out, they would immediately begin vomiting and get sick to their stomach. Someone put together the TRPV1 heat connection and the endocannabinoid system and said, let's try some capsaicin. And there's a few case reports. And since then, at least in our ER, we, when patients come in, they're like, oh, Bobby, I can't help it. And you know, they get some Haldol, they get some Ativan, and then we just slather up with capsaicin. And it's fantastic, the sound. There's nothing worse than the hyperemesis sound, right? There's like a sick person who vomits, who goes glug, 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 glug. And there's that hyperemesis person who are like, <laughs> And you listen for that sound and it goes away. And what you hear it said, it burns, but I feel better. <laughs> so the TRPV1 receptor is what's in the middle of that mix. And the endocannabinoid system, which is very, very complex, and does not result in something so obvious as like you take cocaine, your blood vessels constrict, you get a stroke, you get an MI, uh, is at work here. So what about the phytocannabinoids? 
Well, it's important to understand what's going on with the phytocannabinoids because that's really at the root of this medical marijuana movement that we are, um, you in New Jersey and now us in Pennsylvania are going to start experience. There are, uh, the main psychoactive component of phytocannabinoids is obviously delta-9 delta tetrahydrocannabinol. Uh, 11-hydroxy is an active metabolite. The carboxy is the inactive. There are many, many other uh, phytocannabinoids that have medical activity. Now, they don't have psychiatric or uh, euphoric effects because their binding to the CB1 receptor is not as potent. Cannabidiol is a major one of those, and cannabigerol is another one. Cannabigerol accounts for the red eye and the decrease in intraocular pressure that folks get when they use uh, marijuana. And cannabidiol seems to have an anti-inflammatory pain modulation, maybe almost a little bit of a sedative effect. When folks are putting together medical marijuana, those folks are growing plants and balancing the plants to see if they can get a balance of THC and CBD in their particular brand that works for uh, a group of patients. And so, um, and this is a little thing, I, uh, when I started getting interest uh, in this, I got a Pinterest account. Um, and unlike my daughter, I don't have wedding rings on my Pinterest account. But I have all sorts of things on weed. So if the university ever starts digging into my Pinterest account, I'm, I'm in big trouble. But I like this. I found this on uh, the effects of weed. And uh, it's true. Uh, uh, increased appetite, mostly from stimulation of the CB1 receptor. Uh, impairment in memory, again, CB1 receptor activity. Nausea relief, maybe a combination of CB1 and CB2. Uh, rapid heart rate and bradycardia, hypertension, hypotension, probably all related to CB1. Nausea relief, and on the flip side, hyperemesis, if you're oversaturated, uh, uh, reduced spasticity, actually fairly promising area for cannabidiol. Impaired coordination, we see that all the time in, with acute overdoses. Distortions, memory impairment, uh, it goes on and on. Delusions and hallucinations, not in everybody, but those who seem to be particularly susceptible. And so balancing those two with cannabidiol and THC is what the medical marijuana thing is all about. Now, as a reminder, with medical marijuana, we have sort of have this sense that marijuana is safe. And on some level, in terms of lethality, when you start classifying it in terms of dose versus lethality, indeed, marijuana, LSD, other hallucinogens tend to fall into a fairly safe category. Now, this doesn't count like behavioral problems and you know, other problems uh, in your person's life, but in terms of lethality, certainly uh, other drugs are more lethal dose per dose. That's given us a fair amount of comfort, and uh, in Lancet in 2007, when they surveyed psychiatrists in terms of dependence and harm, they put marijuana in the lower end of concern. So this allowed for everyone to say, well, you know, we have all these conditions that have, you know, no real good cure. We're working on cures like MS and fibromyalgia and muscle spasticity. Why not have medical marijuana? And those laws uh, basically reflect, uh, you know, the sort of distribution of attitudes throughout the U.S. Uh, and in various states, you go from being able to just smoke marijuana to actually having to have no, no smoking and just pill or oil or some ingestible form. 
uh, remember that in federal law, THC is still Schedule One, So you can be an individual who is using medical marijuana and still be unemployable. Uh, so doctors do not write prescriptions for medical marijuana. You attest to a condition. So if your neurologist is uh, in pain, you would say, well, this patient has multiple sclerosis, and that person can go to a dispensary, medical marijuana dispensary, and they say, well, what do you have? And I have some spasm. Or say, well, let's give you this brand or that brand of, of wheat. So it's, it's an interesting evolution. Um, nice article in JAMA a year ago looked at the medical effects of THC and basically said, you know, it's not that great a drug. Uh, the evidence for some pain and especially spasticity are pretty good. Uh, maybe we'll say moderate, uh, but the rest of the evidence is low quality. And if you look at the studies, they're basically comparing THC to placebo for nausea, THC to placebo for uh, vomiting. Nobody's going head-to-head -head with good, you know, solid doses of Zofran like we use on a regular basis. One thing for sure is, though, the adverse effects are real uh, and present, and we do know that wherever medical marijuana was decriminalized or legalized, that one on toward effect is an increase in the number of cases um, in children of accidental uh, exposures, and that's gone up quite a bit. So it is not without adverse effect and not without adverse public health outcome as well. Now, what about synthesizing phytocannabinoids? And we have a few, and there are prescription phytocannabinoids. Uh, the phytocannabinoids that are synthesized basically fall into a couple of categories. One of them we're familiar with is Marinol, which is Delta-9 uh, THC. It's a, in a standardized form, and it's given for appetite um, and nausea um, and anorexia with AIDS. Uh, the Bixamols, which are a combo of two drugs, cannabidiol and THC with trade names. And then you have Nabinol, and Nabinol is what we call a classical synthetic cannabinoid. Uh, it has a very, very similar structure to THC. And so those drugs can be prescribed. Physicians can write for those types of drugs. Uh, but as I said, uh, generally there's a what happens is the patient either demands it or it becomes intolerant to so many other drugs that they try these often as a last resort. Now, in IMHO, as my daughter says, in my humble opinion, uh, this is like basically treating heart failure, one of my favorite topics to treat with foxglove, you know, and grinding up and saying, look, the digitalis in this foxglove is better than the digitalis in that foxglove. It really makes no sense, the whole medical marijuana thing makes no sense because we're using these crude preparations, we're trying to balance, we're basically trying to get enough uh, minimal adverse events to uh, get a therapeutic effect, and to be honest, it has more to do with what the patients are demanding rather than what really science says. is like, this is good for spasticity. Now, hopefully, hopefully, down the road, we get to that point. And so that's what brings us to our epidemic. Um, in the 90s, biochemist and pharma with grant money and big effort was put forth to start manufacturing synthetic cannabinoid receptor agonists and antagonist to determine what's going on in the receptors to see if the CB1 in the CNS and the CB1 in the periphery could be differentiated, to see if the inflammatory effects of CB2 could be triggered without creating, you know, sort of massive problems. 
And this fine fellow, who's now in his 80s, J.W. Huffman, um, J.W.H., uh, started pushing out synthetic cannabinoids and publishing on them. And that went on for many years with no notoriety until 2008, when uh, as someone in Germany got the bright idea of just looking up a JWH compound, going to his lab and putting it together and spraying it on whatever he had in the yard, grass or whatever material, putting it in a packet and calling it spice or potpourri and selling it with the obvious intent to uh, that, uh, oh, thanks a million, uh, to tell folks like, well, if you smoke this, you'll get high, all right? The man responsible for that, unfortunately, is JWH, and a lot of the synthetic cannabinoids are na or have his initials plus a number, because as he was cranking them out, he would say, well, this is JWH 17, 55, 754, on and on it would go. So these synthetic cannabinoids fall into the big category of agonists, and then a smaller category of uh, antagonists. And there's one antagonist, nemotaban, that was used to, uh, as a weight loss drug, an appetite suppressant. Uh, it had horrible adverse effects, and around 2008 was pulled from the market because it caused all sorts of depression uh, and uh, triggered anxiety. Right off the bat, if you look at nemotapan, you can see that that drug and its adverse effects are the problem we have with the endogenous cannabinoid system. It is a very complicated system. It seems to be very specific to the tissue that it's focused on as opposed to sort of having a global effect. And so you can go right as often as you go wrong. And certainly with the agonists, we, had, we, we have had that experience. And that brings us to our, our current day and age where we are on a regular basis as EM physicians and toxicologists treating people who are overdosing on Scooby Snacks. Uh, and uh, every day at the end of my shift, I, I, I work Sunday night, I went out to the, to the walk to the car and the first thing I go get is something that looks like this, you know, like Scooby Snacks, jelly beans and what have you. I can get whatever sugar I can get. So it's crazy when you sit in the ED and your patient after patient is coming in with this crazy stuff. But these are uh, the synthetic cannabinoids. And the problem with synthetic cannabinoids is that it doesn't take very much to create. So you can create a jug of a liquid of highly concentrated synthetic cannabinoid. You can spray it so potent, you just spray a small amount on plant material and you create out tons and tons of drug product to sell. So it's a very lucrative market. Right now, most of the chemistry for this is going on in China, thank you, and getting shipped over to the US uh, via you know, illegal uh, mechanisms. The potency on these drugs is unbelievable. You have, these are full agonists at the CB1 receptor. THC, even in its most potent form, is only a partial agonist, and these are 1,000 times more potent than THC sometimes. In addition, there are so many of these synthetic cannabinoids that you cannot adequately uh, make them illegal or schedule them. So if you get JWH18, you go, aha, that is an illicit drug. That's schedule one. Then you have JWH20 come through. And then you say, all right, what's this, this substance? Oh, this is JWH such and such. And these substances are named after Japanese girl bands, they have letters, it's, they go on and on, and they're literally getting close to about a thousand of these substances. 
As soon as you schedule one, they create another. And on the back of these packets, it will say, does not contain JWH such and such, does not contain this, does not contain that, to imply like, this is still legal, right? You guys haven't figured out what's in this yet. So that brings us to this dude, all right? And the multiple dudes that I see on a given day uh, at Hahnemann uh, who have this situation. And typically, what happens is, like in the lab, you get sympathetic outflow from the CNS, uh, and then as the patient becomes sedated, you get less and less sympathetic outflow, and then the peripheral vasodilatory um, and hypotensive bradycardic effects kick in, and you get what we call the K2 crash. And that is a patient who looks absolutely horrible from a standpoint of the monitor, and you walk in the room and you do the sternal rub and they get up and they start pushing back at you and you run another cycle of pressures and the heart rate is 70 and the blood pressure is 130 over, you know, 75. So our approach to these patients now, knowing that basically what is going on is that the synthetic cannabinoid may on some level have a somewhat protective effect, is that we don't get too anxious about these patients we definitely hit them with volume, though. We hit them with a lot of volume, and usually what we'll do is scan the IVC and see if it's collapsing or not, and invariably it is, and we start hitting them with liters of fluid. And uh, this guy in particular, I remember, we hit him with over about three or four hours, about five liters of fluid. Part of the reason we're doing this type of thing is that that guy has to go to the ICU in my hospital, um, when you wake him up to transport him and move him to the ICU, his blood pressure will look great. And then when he gets to the ICU, it'll drop. If you wake him up and transport him to the floor, he'll look great, and then his blood pressure will drop. So in our feeling, our feeling is that we try to fix them in the ED rather than send them anywhere because most folks um, on the floor really want to know, like, what's going on and have everything sort of, like, fixed and euboxic before they'll accept the patient. So we keep them down in the ED for a long period of time. We do know that we see a lot of myocardial ischemia from K2. In fact, we've had a couple of STEMIs uh, from K2, one of which we're going to uh, report. Um, and we do see seizures, epistotonus, myoclonus. Uh, we see all sorts of, uh, we see acute kidney injury, rhabdomyolysis. Uh, we see uh, some pathomimetic and you know, vago, uh, vagotonic uh, uh, responses. It's really a wild card, and we're never 100% sure. Um, oh, this is my reminder to, to that we scan the IVC looking at this uh, particular uh, approach. Uh, we all know that that can be um, a little problematic. This is a guy I saw um, a couple of weeks ago who actually had um, a uh, STEMI, uh, came in unresponsive, uh, hypotensive. Uh, we're going to send this uh, as a case report. Uh, had an inferior wall STEMI. We called the CATH team. CATH team came down. We said, this guy was smoking K2. And they were like, what is K2? If we had said cocaine, they would been like, great, we'll take him to the CATH lab. But we said K2, and they were like, so they're taking pictures of the Scooby Snacks and trying to figure out what's next. Um, they took him to the CATH lab, and uh, uh, the first impression of the interventionalist when he did the PCI was like, yeah, it looks fine. And then he said, wait a minute, there's supposed to be a second obtuse marginal, and uh, then found it and opened it up. Um, and this guy had smoked AMB Fubinaca and PB22. We ultimately tested the material that he had. So this PB22's been around for a while. This is a new one, okay, 
Who knows whether this one is causing more peripheral uh, effects than you know the 200 before or JWH? It's basically uh, you know an evolving uh, scheme that's going out there. So we don't know where the synthetic cannabinoid K2 problem is going to go. Knowing how things typically go, it'll become a gigantic experiment in the wild with you know drug chemists trying to figure out what gets people high enough that they'll talk about the next day and not, you know, die. So somewhere in that balance there is the economics of the drug trade. So that's basically uh, the, and I'm sorry to have compressed that uh, because I was late, but that's the basically the, the, the whole situation with synthetic cannabinoids. Again, expect wild extremes in terms of mental status and seizures and especially wild extremes in terms of cardiovascular effects. Be prepared for the crash, okay? So good IV, monitor, be on top of these patients. Uh, we recommend IV fluid. If you really needed a presser, you probably would want to go with like norepi, some direct acting presser, because if you're thinking about it, you're not blocking the peripheral nerve terminals, terminals you're blocking synaptic release, right? So dopamine probably would not be a good choice, but something that worked right on the terminal itself uh, might be great. And we've not had to resort to that with our patients, uh, and we're a little concerned about doing it because, again, when, they get, when people get stimulated, then they seem to get hypertensive again. So we're not, we try to avoid putting them on pressure drips. Uh, usually the whole thing resolves within six hours, the wild hemodynamics, and then you're left with the positive troponin or the positive, um, you know, the elevated creatinine or the, uh, the highly elevated CK. Um, and... Uh, in our particular case, the patient who had his MI uh, improved uh, over a couple of days and came back a month later with chest pain after smoking crack because K2 is dangerous. So uh, <laughs> uh, we admitted him on a second visit. He did not make any enzymes. And he, so maybe he proved the point that crack might be a little safer than K2 <laughs> in the right situation. Is that what you recommend to the patients? What's that? You recommend crack to the patients? Yeah, right. Switch the crack for a while. You know, just change it up. <laughs> All right, great. Um, yeah. Oh, that was great. Um, so is this a scheme Paul, it's crazy. So if you look at the peripheral effects of K2, it's all vasodilatory, right? And any number of possible explanations are there. The sympathomimetic surge in the beginning, cause vasospasm, uh, the bradycardic hypotensive event was such that there was low flow. We do not know. In fact, what we don't know is whether even one uh, synthetic cannabinoid to, a, to the other has completely different effects on the CNS in the periphery. So I couldn't tell you, you know, my, when we talk about it with our colleagues, we just say like, ah, that was a guy who had a high-grade stenosis who just got a little too excited. Um, but we've had pediatric cases. There was a case series in Turkey of pediatric cases that made troponins. And these were like in their 20s and 18 adolescents who used K2 and made troponins. Now, obviously, they don't have a high-grade, generally have high-grade stenosis. None of them got cast, but they all made troponins. So something is going on, and it's very possible it's direct tissue damage, completely counterintuitive you know, to what we think cannabinoids are supposed to be doing in terms of protecting from ischemia, reperfusion, and inflammation. So when you, 
Yeah, so in the beginning, right, you know, you know, my first approach was like, ah, synthetic marijuana. I've been treating marijuana for years. You know, I just let them sleep it off and kick them out. And then the first one came back, troponin came back positive. I was like, oh, oh, yeah. I started double-checking these guys. And then we started seeing STEMIs. And yeah, so when they have cardiovascular effects, right, when they're not just smooth sailing or just a little high, we will start adding troponins. And there's no science to that. Uh, we're just, you know, like digging around and shopping for potential, uh, but we do get labs, we check their kidneys, we'll check a CPK to see if they're in rhabdo, so we've been starting to add that now, and we definitely get an EKG, for sure. Yeah. So are you scanning everyone's IVC and giving fluids only the flat, or are you just starting to lose anyone? So, um, uh, who's the ultrasound person here? Uh, no. uh, so every single resident, every single house officer is an ultrasound person, right? So you guys are way better at this than any of us old cadres are. Paul can remember at Jacoby when the ultrasound machine would be like, oh, I got it, we'll bring it in. <laughs> you know, and be like, you'd be in the GYN room with one of these things sticking. <laughs> right? Remember that giant thing? Now the residents are like, I got my own pocket ultrasound. My father gave it to me as a graduation present. So what's the controversy with IVC ultrasound um, and hypovolemia? Uh, anybody know? Yeah, it's a good question. <laughs> IBC ultrasound and hypovolemia is not 100% slam dunk, right? So you can either measure the IBC and say, like, well, that's too low. Uh, but even that doesn't really predict well. Or you can measure the collapse of the IBC, right, and say, well, that's really collapsing on inspiration. That doesn't look too well. But one thing that seems to work well, and I forget who asked me the question, what, uh, if they're hypotense and the IBC is collapsing, there's no question that fluids are going to be harmless and probably helpful. And so that's where we're going. And we're starting to use uh, ultra, IVC ultrasound and tox to start saying, is this calcium channel blocker really volume depleted, or does, does it need more squeeze in the, in the heart? And in general, when we scan them and look at their heart, they've got plenty of pump, even though it's going at 30, right? But the IVC is flat as can be. And so we know that more fluid is not going to flood them, not put them in the pulmonary edema. So that's kind of our approach, completely untested. You know, we're just developing it as, it as it moves along. It does make you feel better, though, when you're ordering the fifth liter of normal saline, when you have something to compare it to. And the guys, and then once that IVC plumps up and they're still hypotense, that, that's what we say. All right, it's pressure time. Yeah. Do you have a protocol management for arrest of, of, of K2 patients? No, we have not protocolized that at all. Okay. We're, we're, Are you uh, treating it mostly as a hypertensive arrest? Or? Okay. We're treating it, the, the ones that have gotten into trouble have fallen into two categories. Seizures, in which case they're very sympathomimetic, and um, MIs, which for the most part have been very vagal, you know, hypotensive, bradycardic. And so it's uh, been fluids uh, and, uh, you know, airway management and the cath lab for the ones that are having ischemia. And it's been, uh, you know, benzo, benzo, benzos, intubate uh, for the ones that are having seizures. So it, that's why it got me interested in this because I thought, well, I, you know, I've been doing this for a long time. I can put everything in a nice little bucket and get through my shift. And every time I would say K2 causes, mm, I would end up with a K2 causes the opposite the next day. So... Um, but we have not gotten to the point where we protocolize any of these things. We're just sort of like flying by our seat of our pants. 
the, the uh, so there are all kinds of different compounds, so they probably have different half-lives. You said six hours is usually when they wake up. Are there some that last longer or shorter? Or what? Yeah, so the phytocannabinoids, especially when ingested, have the longest half-lives. And the synthetics uh, have a much shorter half-life, but they're all smoked. So um, not sure. I've not seen anyone ingest uh, K2. One of my concerns is that because of the uh, metabolism and absorption, that that is going to have a long half-life. But everybody that has smoked, for the most part, has been over the most intense toxicity within six to eight hours. Uh, there is a hangover effect. When you go see them the next day, in uh, the hospital, they are generally sort of washed out and worn out. But um, for the most part, the rough patch is done within six to eight hours. But you're 100% right. The kinetics vary. The binding properties vary. They vary in binding to CB1 and CB2. And there's a new compound coming out all the time. So if you are an illicit drug chemist, you look at you know, one of these drugs, and you say, well, I want to make a new one. So you'll say, I'll just put another aliphatic chain on there, and a bigger aliphatic chain, a bigger chain. And that's going to change the lipid. That's going to change the CNS pen penetration. Every time we get a new one, we don't know what we're dealing with. So I don't have a great answer. <laughs> are are they, uh, there are no drug screens for those? No, that's the other problem, and this is why the epidemic has occurred. Because if you're on probation and you need to pass a UDS, or you have a job and you need to pass a UDS, you can't abuse anything but K2. <laughs> And K2 will not show up because they are non-classical cannabinoids. They have, bear no relationship to the THC molecule and the carboxy uh, metabolite that um, you and drug screens are based on. And so this was the cause of the big epidemic we saw in Philly, was that once folks who were on probation or had legal problems realized they could smoke K2 and then meet their probation officer on Monday and pass the UDS, then it was off to the races. You saw last week in, uh, sorry, you saw last week in Brooklyn where there was that whole epidemic in Bushwick and there's a great YouTube video, you should, I, I couldn't get it to start here, but there are literally like dudes just like sort of sitting there, you know, uh, frozen uh, and like all around the corner. What happens is it's too easy, you know, like 20 packets of K2 to everybody who's inclined to abuse synthetic cannabinoids and you have like a mini epidemic. So um, in terms of managing the severe agitation or excited delirium that K2 can cause, um, have you seen more success with benzos or with ketamine? Uh, the most success we have seen uh, has been in combination approach, okay? So um, uh, anyone who we've had to intubate, we've had no trouble with the usual atomidate and sucks approach. If they are hypotensive, um, which will get us to our next lecture, uh, then we will use ketamine. Uh, because we feel like that has a positive effect. If they're really hypotensive, sometimes we'll use low-dose ketamine. We always use, whenever we have a hypotensive patient, we always use high dose of our um, uh, paralytics. Uh, but benz the typical one that you're going to see, we use Haldol, Geodon, and a little Ativan, and that seems to have, you know, not uh, any real strong side effects. And... Uh, is easy to manage, and the nurses don't mind giving that those types of combination drugs. We have tried things like 5-Ahaldol, 10-Ahaldol, 15-Ahaldol, 20-Ahaldol, and uh, it just doesn't seem to be as effective. That's only a couple cases. Yeah? In terms of the uh, hyperemesis, is it always sensitization that you think? Because, well, it could be the, obviously, the concentration or a thousand times more problems. 
Yeah, so THC and metabolites build up in the fat. So no one knows whether it is basically just leftover metabolite that is still active at that TRPV1 receptor. And so you smoke, you're high, you have an active metabolite, and that's gone. And then two days later, you have no active THC, but you're just vomiting. So in theory, what's going on? Well, maybe the THC triggered the receptor, and now you're withdrawing from it. So that would be that you would have like sensitization, or that it's actually still being uh, activated or agonized by some metabolite. Um, but we, we, we really don't know. We really do not know what is going on there. All we know is that that seems to be the receptor that's involved. And that's why in, you know, the capsaicin, which seemed sort of like a wild shot, uh, works. The patients are not thrilled with it. <laughs> um, but uh, we tried. The nurses um, have learned. They put on two gloves so they don't get any on them. And they go, come on, baby, now where does it hurt? And they go, no, it hurts over here, baby. On there, they rub it on there. And it just that, just to see that alone is worth ordering four inches of capsaicin. <laughs> they, they really engage the placebo effect, but uh, it's the TRPV1 receptor that's in there, so we're throwing capsaicin at it, and so far it's working. All right, great.